God, we thank you that these things that we sing are true. Even when we don't feel them, even when we don't immediately recognize them to be so, we cannot deny your faithfulness to your people. You completely and utterly proved it in Jesus, but in addition to that, in abundance and overflow of that, you walk with us because of him. And you have walked with us through everything that each of us individually have suffered and faced, through all the things that are coming up that we don't even know are coming. You know, and you are walking with us. And you have never let go, and you will never let go to those that you have loved in Christ. Nothing can separate us from the love you have for us. And so we thank you for that sure and certain hope that that brings as well. But just as nothing can separate us, we have a hope for a life that is beyond and above and even more rich than this life. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for calling us to yourself and giving us the opportunity to sing together and gather together. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. My name is David, and I'm on staff here, and it is my pleasure to re-welcome some of you and welcome some of you. If you'd look in your bulletins together with me, we've already talked about some of those announcement-y things, but this morning we're going to move into our time of prayer, and so if you'd look at that prayer focus with me. Um, I don't know how many of you watched the debate last night, but all I watched was the clip of the introductions. If you haven't watched the clip of the introductions from the debate last night, you should just to realize how crazy things can be and how ridiculous some of this is getting. Um, And in the face of all that, we're called to pray for those men and women. Uh, It is it is our job, as it were, as believers, uh, those who hold fast to the the gospel, those who believe that the Bible is true. uh, The Bible then tells us uh, to pray for these and so as we enter into this primary season in particular, so uh, it, it will even, there, there, we haven't even reached critical mass of presidential talking things on the news. Like, it's not even there yet. It's going to get better. And so as we draw even closer to November, um, let this be an opportunity for you to remember to pray. So when you see the nonstop reporting, um, let that be an encouragement to us to do what we've been told to do, to pray without ceasing for those who are in this race, for those who are pursuing these votes, for those who would lead our country. They need to be prayed for. They need to be shaped ultimately by the gospel. And so we would pray that God would do that work in and through them. So as we are in this primary season in particular, it's still kind of everywhere. Um, And so pray that God's people, that's us, that's those who uh, believe the gospel, that the church, capital C, would all keep their focus on the sure and certain hope of Jesus. Because that's the other thing, is that uh, from a media perspective, from a marketing perspective, um, every candidate wants to sell you on their hope. We, you know, we already, we got plenty of that uh, from previous election uh, as a marketing scheme. 
Uh, and so we don't want to, those of us who believe in Jesus, we don't want to buy into that. Uh, so trust ultimately that our hope for everything to be reconciled is ultimately in Jesus. And out of that context, pray that we would engage in gospel-centered consideration of the issues, the candidates. Um, that's a fight for us. We live in a, you know, a, a culture that has given us lots of categories to think about things. And obviously, the, you know, the American dream and the gospel don't always work together. They, in fact, they're pretty different. And so uh, we need to fight to let ourselves be shaped by a gospel worldview and consider the issues from that perspective and even consider the candidates from that perspective. And ultimately, uh, one of the things I think that's really important to pray for one another is for our interaction with those who are both believing and non-believing voters. Uh, our, our community notices us as a church, as believers. They notice how we speak of God, how we speak of the scriptures, how we speak of one another, and then how we speak of our enemy or who we perceive to be our enemy. Uh, so let's pray for one another that all of our social media interaction, all of our uh, you know, water cooler conversation, all of our deep conversation and with families, that they would be gospel-centered, that they would be uh, with, with Christ as our sure and certain hope and emerge out of that. Because um, it's an opportunity to share the gospel, even as we talk about all these political things. Uh, and then ultimately pray that we would trust the King of Kings because he's better. Jesus is a better ruler than any ruler we will ever have, ever. Jesus is a better king than David, who was, from Israel's perspective, pretty awesome. Uh, Jesus is better than anything that we might hope for um, in this era. Uh, so pray for us to trust that we would trust the King of Kings through any outcome. And that's going to be more more difficult for us as we move into November especially, but regardless of the outcome, we would trust God. And so these things are all the things we want to pray for this morning. But again, like I mentioned earlier, take your bulletin with you. Pray for these things through the week. And then as we are inundated with plenty of marketing and media and news, pray with the gospel at the center, with Jesus as our king. Uh, pray for those who are in this uh, presidential race. So let's take a few moments to be silent before the Lord. There's also a list of requests that are ongoing, that are there in the bulletin and that come out frequently on the city. Uh, so pray for those things in this uh, moment of silence, and then I'll close uh, in prayer. So would you pray with me? God, we are so grateful that you have called us to be your people. And that you have set us apart to be your people. You remind us that we are not of uh, this present age, this world. And yet we are in the world. You have placed us here and now. 
So God, help us to know how to be responsible as citizens, as voters. Help us to know how to be responsible as parents, uh, teaching our children through this season. Help us to be responsible uh, ultimately as ambassadors of Christ while we interact with our families and coworkers and friends through this uh, season that is offering us plenty of things to talk about. I pray that ultimately every conversation about hope or about lasting change or about uh, human flourishing, that all of it would come back to the gospel. Because it's only in Jesus that hope has substance. It's only in Jesus that lives are radically changed. And it's only living in the power of the Holy Spirit that that humanity can truly flourish at this point. And so we long for when you will make all things right and, and your creation will flourish as you intend. We long for Christ to return and make these things issues of the past. But in the midst of that longing, God, help us uh, to live responsibly, uh, to pray as you have called us to pray. For all those who are in authority over us and all those who are seeking that, uh, we pray for them. So for all of these Republican candidates, we pray that uh, your will be done, that your hand would be obvious to us so that... It makes it that much easier for us to trust God. But even if it's not obvious, help us to trust you. We pray for the Democratic candidates in the same way that they would be, that your will would be done, that your hand would would move in ways that are obvious. We pray that uh, that the the our local church and the church across this country uh, would be just a, a beacon of true hope through this season, uh, that, that it would be obvious that our trust is in the king above all kings. And out of that place of comfort and confidence, uh, drawing near to your throne, help us to interact in these processes. We pray that you would take uh, the things that we offer and the things that we tithe, God, and build your kingdom. Uh, use them for... Uh, the continued proclamation of the gospel, use them to to meet needs as necessary. God, thank you for giving so much to us so that we can give so abundantly. Thank you for showing so much mercy to us so that we can be so merciful. Thank you for giving so much grace to us that we might be graceful. We love you and we thank you for uh, all that you have done and are doing. And it's the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Well, good morning and welcome again to Grace Community Church. So glad that you are here this morning. My name is Brad Talley. I am the teaching elder and I have vertigo. This is the Vertigo Society, right? I can't tell. You're all doing... Not really, but this morning I woke up and it was like this. If you've ever had vertigo, it's really bad when it's like this. But it started and I've 
made it through so far this morning. But if I run to this room, make sure, pray that I make it, okay? At least the children are out of here, so maybe it wouldn't be so dramatic. Uh, I wanted to mention a couple of things. One, right after lunch, uh, right after church today, the seniors are going to be meeting at the home of Matt and Gina Damaris, and they're going to be having lunch. Uh, if you snuck in here and you somehow had not heard about that, we would love for you to join us for that. And then also... Wednesday night, 7 o'clock, women's ministry. Uh, Allison, my wife, is going to be sharing her story. First part of it, uh, you know, might not be so great, but these last several years have been. Um, so, no, I'm just kidding. Maybe the other way, for all I know. We'll see how it goes between now and then, I suppose. Well, let me ask you, I guess, you know, your, your anticipation of that might depend on what you... Are you an optimist or a pessimist? I mean, do you see the potential in every opportunity, event, comment? Or is Eeyore, the sad donkey from Winnie the Pooh, your mentor? Not much of a house, just right for not much of a donkey... End of the road, nothing to do, and no hope of getting better. Sounds like Saturday night at my house. I mean, it, it typically comes down to perspective, doesn't it? How we look at the world is how we anticipate things to come. I mean, if you're an optimist, you feel sad for the, those who are, are pessimists. You just feel sorry for them. Man, I just wish you could view life with a little more optimism. And if you're a pessimist, you're deeply concerned about the naivete of your optimistic friends. One of the challenges of working through Hebrews is that when you remember the circumstances of of the people who first received this letter, people who were facing intense and extreme persecution, the temptation is to feel discouraged on their behalf and then when you look at the world you might say well you know we're hitting there again I mean on the one hand there is something distinctly un-American about being pessimistic about the future but then again at election time it is our God-given right for every American to feel pessimistic about anybody except your candidate who is going to save the day Sociologists, listen, there's a lot to feel good about in our world today. Sociologists tell us that poverty is being reduced at far greater rates than most of you are aware. Far quicker than most of you know. Poverty around the world is being reduced. People have access to clean water today. There are laws in place for women that did not exist before. And look, any society that does not take care of women and children is not going to get very far with advances in technology or anything else. So there are a lot of improvements worldwide. And even though you may think, I'm doing my best to keep the poverty statistics down there where they belong, uh, once again, it's your perspective about what constitutes abject poverty. Everything is relative, right? I mean, the more you advance, the more you think poverty kind of comes with you. And it's not that far back before you're destitute yourself. 
So at the same time, though, that there's much to be happy about, I mean, how long can we go before the financial system, not only in America but worldwide, just absolutely collapses under the strain of debt? It is impossible for us to keep going like we're going. What about out-of-control groups like ISIS who threaten our stability and security? Is there order is, or is there chaos in the world? Yes, there is. Most of you work very hard to bring some semblance of order to your life, to your world. But in the same way that you never step into the same river twice because it's constantly changing, you never wake up to the same world two days in a row. The world is constantly changing. What is extremely good in your life may be bad tomorrow. What is extremely bad in your life today may be good in 10 years. Just call me Eeyore. I'd look on the bright side if I could find it. Here's the deal. We live in an ever-changing world. And the families into which we were born and our prosperity and our freedom and medical advances tend to make us think that we can do anything and everything in the world until we realize that we are not after all the masters of our own faith fate that's a shocking revelation for most americans for those who follow jesus there's comfort in knowing that even though everything changes all around me jesus never Will And it's comforting to know that the quality of our lives will not be determined by what happens in New Hampshire this week or at, or at the polls in November. Regardless, just as David talked about, our hope is not here. It's in the Lord and yet we have responsibilities so we get emotionally involved whether we want to or not. As believers, our hope is in Jesus, not in democracy. That doesn't mean that when you follow Jesus, life is going to get better and better. It means that while the world around us changes for good or for bad, God is an unmovable and an unassailable rock who never changes and who will always keep his promises. Our text today is Hebrews 6, 13 to 20. I had hoped to get halfway through chapter 7 and then finish it up next week, but there's just so much here that there wasn't time to go all the way through, uh, uh, halfway through Hebrews 7. So next week, hopefully, we'll just take Hebrews 7 in one session, be reading up. It's about Melchizedek uh, and how he will point us to Jesus. Before we read the text this morning, I wanted to share a quote that I heard from Stanley Hauerwas, who is at Duke. And this quote beautifully captures the truth of our text. And though it is not exact, the quote goes something like this. Even in the light of the sufferings of this world, of this age, we live in hope. Not because we have answers to all the world's troubles, but because God has given us a way to live without answers. Even in light of the sufferings of this age, we live in hope. (coughs) Not because 
We have answers to all the world's troubles. But because God has given us a way (coughs) to live without answers. Would you please stand as we read (coughs) Hebrews 13 or Hebrews 6. 13 through 20. And let's do this today. We used to do this when we were smaller. (coughs) And this will help me for just a minute. If you would, let's read this. You read. Someone begin in verse 13, read one, two, three verses. Someone else pick it up until we get through our text. Read loudly, please, so that everyone can hear you. Lord, we have already sung today about the anchor of our soul. Encourage our hearts and burn this truth into our minds, into our very beings. May we fall on you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, be seated. So how do you feel when someone makes a promise to you? Well, again, back to the optimist or, or pessimist, maybe cynic or, or, or hopeful you are. Uh, I suppose when someone makes a promise to us, we tend to think that it's going to happen <clears throat> based on who it is making the promise, what the promise is exactly. <clears throat> I doubt uh, seriously this has ever happened to you, but has someone ever made a promise to you and then didn't keep it? Probably not since yesterday, I don't imagine. But we, we all know the heartbreak of broken promises, don't we? I mean, we feel good about some promises made to us, and then we don't hold out much hope about the other promises. And it's right for us to be upset when people break promises because we've never done that. I mean, there are all kinds of reasons that people break their promises. Some people are just flat out trustworthy. And over time you, you learn to say, I just don't, I, you know, I hear what you're saying, but I, I don't believe it. Others have the absolute best of intentions, but very little willpower to follow through. That's why Ecclesiastes 5.5 5 says it's better not to make a vow. And the implication is to God. Don't promise something to God and then don't keep it. It's just better not to make the promise. You're better off. I mean, we make promises because... A lot of times we want people to think well of us. But if we don't keep them, of course, we end up doing far more damage than good to our own reputation. Some people make promises on the basis of knowledge. Uh, 
that they have at the, at the present time. But then further information keeps them from being able to follow through with those promises. I mean, if you promise your spouse or child or friend that you'll go with him or her to an event and then you get sick, well, you're typically given a, a pass on that one, right? Oh, okay, well, I know you promised, but something came up that renders it impossible for you to go. And then sometimes promises are made that are fulfilled much, much later than you would have anticipated. It's like, I mean, all this time, this promise was made to me. And then finally, one day, it's fulfilled. In Hebrews 6, the author flatly states that God always, always keeps his promises. And we are called on the basis... Of this declaration about God's faithfulness. We are called to trust his promises. The example that the writer gave here about Abraham. Would have resonated deeply with the original hearers. Who were mostly Jewish if not completely Jewish. When he talked about Abraham. God making a promise to Abraham. He, over and over in Genesis We read, Abraham believed God. Early on it said, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. But that's not what this one is referring to. The writer is not referring back to the time when Abraham was 65 years old and the Lord said, I'm going to make a great nation of you. And he he didn't, you know, Abraham didn't say, ah, a little late, isn't it? Later on, God is making a promise and Abraham still um, believing But this instance occurred after Abraham was commanded by God to sacrifice Isaac. And God spoke to him just after he had kept Abraham from sacrificing Isaac. So what about that anyway? I mean, why would God call Abraham to sacrifice his own son? It will be helpful to know, at least at some level, that that would have not been considered that crazy a a, a command in that day. Because of the way the people were, the pagan peoples. But why would God call Abraham to sacrifice Isaac? It seems beyond our comprehension. How could Abraham, on the other hand, be willing to sacrifice his son? Believe it or not, that's not the point. Of Hebrews 7. Hebrews 6 I mean. It's not the point the the, the author is making at all. Nor that Genesis is making. Hebrews 11 is going to tell us that Abraham was convinced. That God would raise Isaac from the dead. We'll talk more about that. Resurrection as well as crucifixion. All over the Old Testament. Just think about the implications. Abraham was 75 Sarah was 65 years old when God first promised a son to them. And again, you could think, uh, that's, pretty, that's pretty far advanced, isn't it, Lord? God reiterated his promise long afterwards that Sarah was, long after Sarah was past the age of being able to bear. I am going to give you a son. Abraham believed God, Genesis 15 tells us, and it was counted to him for righteousness. Abraham's not going to be in heaven because he was a good man. Abraham is going to be in heaven because he believed the promises of God. 
We are in heaven not because we're good people and our good works outweigh our bad works. We will go to heaven only because of the goodness and righteousness of Jesus Christ. And we believe that when he died on the cross, he did so in payment for our sins. But Abraham is being told all along later, not long, maybe just a year or two before Isaac was born. You remember Ishmael, that whole thing, the crazy thing. Sarah said, look, take my handmaid, Hagar, and let's have a child. That was very, again, another very common thing in that day. Was it right? No, it was stupid. But it happened a lot. And, and so when God said, Abraham, I will make a great nation of your son. Sarah will have a child. He said, <laughs> may Ishmael live before you. That was a great heart that Abraham had. But he just said, you know, God, what you're saying about Sarah. Okay, it's through Sarah's handmaid. We count that as her child. May Ishmael live before thee. By the way, Romans 7, I want to do right for God, but I don't do right for him. And the things that I hate, I end up doing. And the things that I want to do, all that back and forth. It's kind of us saying, may Ishmael live before you, O Lord. I've got a plan, and it's a good plan. I'm going to be a good person. Even after after I become a Christian, okay, you saved me, and now it's up to me. God essentially tells us everything is of Him. Everything comes from Him. Our salvation, our sanctification, our glorification, everything is of God. And Abraham struggled even though he had already believed, even though he was already counted righteous. Now he's struggling and saying, may Ishmael live before you. God said, no, Abraham, it's going to be through Sarah. So when he was 100, Sarah was 90. Isaac was born. Isaac means laughter. Can you not imagine the laughter in that house? There was a lot of laughter everywhere. Anybody heard about it? (laughs) Really? You're kidding me. They were so happy. And then some years later, God said to Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son, Isaac, and sacrifice him. How many years later? We're not told. Could have been anywhere from 5 to 25 years later. Isaac was old enough. To be thinking about this. Where's the father? Where's the lamb that we're going to sacrifice? Just think of all the trust that was involved here. Isaac seems to have trusted his father. Even though he didn't understand everything that was happening. Surely he was strong enough. Or fast enough to get away from Abraham. Old man Abraham. And Abraham... Believed that God would keep his promise no matter what. That's amazing trust. After God stopped Abraham from sacrificing Isaac. He commended him for his faith and he provided the ram for a sacrifice. And after the sacrifice God renewed his promise on oath to Abraham. That a great nation would come through Isaac. 
God swore by himself because there was nothing greater to swear by. When you go into a court of law, what do you do? If you're a witness, what do you do? Put your hand on the Bible. Do you swear to tell the truth? Nothing but the truth, the whole truth. So help you, God. I do. You swear by someone who is greater than you. You say that I promise before God, who sees everything, that what I am about to say is the truth. God had no one greater to invoke, so he swore by himself. Now, I know what you're thinking. Some of you are thinking... But didn't Jesus say we're not to swear by heaven or earth? And didn't James say the same thing? Well, that's true. That's, that's true. But, but you have to understand what Jesus was addressing. He wasn't talking about legal oaths. He was talking about the, the, the self-justification, the self-righteous uh, um, oaths that people, I swear by the gold of the temple that I intended to give you this land before I sold it. It's kind of like trying to make myself look good. And how good am I? I swear by the gold of the temple. And Jesus said, Just, you, that's crazy. That's crazy. You, you've even got the oath wrong. But the whole reason that you're doing it is sinful. Not legal oaths. Binding oaths. We make those all the time, don't we? Every wedding you've ever been to, vows are being taken. Hopefully they are. I promise. I promise. God, there's no one that God needs to promise to. So he swears by himself. We say all kinds of things that are ultimately not true. In fact, we say all kinds of things that are not true to begin with. God never says anything that is untrue. Think how the particular instance of Abraham's willingness to sacrifice Isaac spoke to the recipients of this letter. Now remember their circumstances. They, along with many of their Jewish brothers and sisters, said, We believe that Jesus is the Messiah. (coughs) He is the one that God has brought. To the earth. To die for us. We believe that all the nations will be blessed because of Jesus. Jesus, He's the one to whom the Lord has pointed. Over time though. Many had walked away from the Christian faith. They have said, you know, really has it. Things haven't just turned out like we anticipated that they would. And now, with extreme persecution looming and their lack of connection with the outside world, some of them were beginning to ask, really, should I die for a lost cause? Is it worth that? I mean, I'm going to die for this Jesus and I, I had my doubts early, then I believed, but I'm not so sure anymore. And what's the example the writer gives? Abraham, do not harm your son. Now I know you believe me and trust me. Look, get out of your mind just the idea that God's calling him. He he never was going to allow Abraham to do it. He's pointing out 
this extreme faith that he calls all of us to. On the basis of his promises. We'll talk more about it when we get to Hebrews 11. You know what the writer's saying? You can trust God at the same level that Abraham trusted God. Well, there's so much truth and information in this text in so little time. Let's concentrate on what it says about God's character. And and then we'll draw application before we come to the Lord's table. Uh, Verse 18 tells us what we already know and believe. It is impossible for God to lie. I, I didn't go into the details of this study, but I came across someone saying that Essentially, and I don't know where it is in the Greek exactly, but essentially what God is saying here is this. If, if I'm not telling the truth about this, then you don't believe me for anything. We can't treat one another that way because, look, we all, we're sinful. But if God is not perfect, let it go. We're going to be challenged along those lines. But he's saying right here, it is impossible for God to lie. Now, look, there, that doesn't mean there aren't many times that we, we don't misunderstand God's promises. But he will not and he cannot, in fact, lie. It is impossible for a holy and righteous God to lie. If he is untrustworthy at any level, then the whole thing collapses. And what are we doing here? It's why we are called to trust Him at the highest levels. And it's why those who do not trust God's character and goodness ask questions like, how could a good God allow the Holocaust and child abuse and starvation? And we sit in judgment of things that we cannot understand. It's entirely fair to say when someone asks you, That is above my pay grade. But I trust God. Maybe your questions are a bit more personal. Why would God take someone from me that I love very much and is is so much better than, than I am? When you're tempted to question God's will for your life, discipline yourself. Take the time to look at the cross where God gave over His Son because of His love for you and because of His desire and delight to live with you in eternity and to give you life, bring you into His life. Look to the cross where Jesus expressed ultimate trust in his father. Though there was no earthly justice in this crucifixion at all. Justice, yes. God's justice, yes. No earthly justice at all. When you look at the circumstances around you. Trust the promises of God. You have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul that takes you past the inner curtain 
and into the very presence of God on the basis of the great high priest, your great high priest, Jesus, who is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What? What? Is that? Well, we'll get into it next week. We've already been into it some. By helping you to know that what you see is not all there is to our existence. That's what our great high priest does for us. That's what it means to have an anchor for the soul. When I speak of your existence, I don't mean the days of your life on this earth. But your eternal existence. Which will never end. There are so many points of application we can draw from this text. But let's just look at three. This morning. First. Never confuse hope in this world. With biblical hope. My son Michael. And I text back and forth a lot about sports and uh, theology and politics. Though there's so little to talk about these days. We're just struggling to find something to say. That's always a problem of mine, you know, struggling to find something to say. But we have both agreed that if the Panthers win the Super Bowl tonight, this will be the best sports moment of our lives. I mean, it's just the absolute best. Up until this time, the 1982 National Championship when Michael Jordan hit that jump shot and Carolina won Dean Smith's first National Championship. Up until hopefully tonight, that was the best sports moment of my life. The worst sports moment of my life was 1977. Anybody know? Marquette. Carolina. They had beaten, everybody they had beaten to the national championship game was better. And Dean Smith had never won one. So that was the worst sports moment of my life. And you know what's funny? The emotion and the pain of that moment in 1977, I know I'm ridiculous. That (laughs) is far greater than the joy of what happened in 1982. Isn't that funny? I mean, it's like the wind leaves you. Hey, that's great. What's next now? You know, what's, what's coming next? And the loss confirms what you already knew. I just wasn't good enough. Now we weren't good enough. I'm not good enough to win the national championship. Now, if you're not a serious sports fan, that's, that analogy seems silly to you. And I'm worried because Teresa Grabowski posted that thing about if, if your pastor mentions the Super Bowl, hit him with Gatorade, you know, after the service. <laughs> Uh, look, if it's yellow, you might, when I puke, you might not be able to tell. So that, that might be all right. Um, but I'm sure there's something in your life about which you can relate. I mean, that job, that house, that boyfriend, that girlfriend, that perfect family... None of which really exist. I mean, yes, for a time, but it all passes. I mean, whatever good comes to us, if it is not in Jesus, if our hope is in this life, sooner or later we realize dust to dust, everything's meaningless. Isn't it? Really? 
We're going to be all optimistic about three score and ten? I'm depressed, but then I'm Eeyore. Even those of us who follow Jesus tend to have a Christian version of hope in this life. Surely God would want this to go well with me. Surely He wants me to be healthy or my family members to be healthy and employed and secure in this life. Without question, God wants all of my children to follow Him. So how can this be right? The problem with such expectations is that when things go badly, as they inevitably will in this life, in this broken world... (coughs) then there must be something wrong with me. Or worse, something is wrong with God. But the problem is not with God's promises. And the answer is not distraction, Or complete avoidance. Or just scratching out as best you can. The answer is hope. Hope in the New Testament almost always refers to eternal life. Look, promises have that that, that futuristic nature about them, right? I promise you means that in the future, this is what will happen. Hope, our hope is in heaven. Don't say, I hope this will happen or that will happen. And God has promised me. That's what I've got hope. And the New Testament tells me I've got hope. Nothing is promised to go right in this life. Although much often does. Because of God's tender love. And his painting a picture that one day all wrongs are going to be made right. And that's when our hope will be realized. When we're standing before him. Not when anything. The best thing that you could possibly think of happening. When that happens. That's not when your hope will be realized. Your hope will be realized when you're standing before Jesus. And people can't tell you apart. Because you're like him. Recognizing our hope is in the future doesn't mean, though, that we just have to muddle along as best we can, waiting for heaven. Indeed, the second admonition is to keep your soul anchored in Jesus. What is an anger for? Is it to keep away the rough seas or to keep you from drowning in the rough seas? An anchor actually implies storms. It's not that you invite troubles into your life, but when they come, you have an anchor of the soul. And an anchor is enormously useful when you're about to be swept away to disaster. So is the steadfast anchor of the soul in verse 19 the hope that we have in Jesus, or is it found in the promises of God? It's the second time today. You already know the answer. It's yes. This is one of those times... Where he's referring to more than you can see or more than than just one answer. The anchor of the soul 
is the hope that we have in Jesus according to the promises of God. When I say the word of God, what immediately comes to your mind? If I were to say, tell me about the word of God, you would think of this, right? It would be equally appropriate, would it not, to say Jesus. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. Remember, if you, a lot of you weren't here. Go back on the website and, and, and look at the message from John chapter 1 back in, during our Advent season. Some of you were gone. Where Jesus and the word, it, it's like the Holy Spirit is the author of the word. And the Holy Spirit and the and scripture are almost inseparable at times. Which is why it's never legitimate to say, I know what scripture says, but the Holy Spirit's leading me to do this. The Holy Spirit will never lead you apart from the word. It is also true that, that when you're in the word, you're staring at Jesus. And the more you spend time in here, the more you look like Jesus. And this is the anchor that we have of the soul. The promises of God (coughs) that point us (coughs) to Jesus. We have an anchor. We don't have to manufacture the anchor. We don't have to purchase the anchor. We have an anchor for the soul. And really, the point says, keep your soul anchored in Jesus. It's really more that Jesus is keeping you anchored to him. It looks like everything is going to tear you apart. The circumstances of life are going to tear you apart. But he's not going to let that happen. That doesn't mean that you'll live or that you'll be healed or that everything you'll you'll get out of this financial crisis unscathed, or that you'll get a job next week. It doesn't mean those things. It does mean that He will keep you from being torn apart if you trust in Him. You ever noticed how, isn't it something how, as long as you have some ability to manage your situation, it's really difficult to trust God. And then, when all hope is taken away, You put your hope in the only place that hope resides. In Jesus. In Him. And in the Word is to be in Christ. Scripture always points you to Him. That's why we can say in this last point of application. No That you can always trust God. That's what he's saying right here. He said it rather dramatically. You know what he said? Know that you can always trust God. No matter what. Abraham. Is a great model of faith for us. His faith was in Yahweh. His faith was in Jesus. He didn't know Jesus at that point like we do. But Jesus said to the Pharisees when they said, We're Abraham's children. You're you're talking to us about being right with God. We're Abraham's children. He said, Abraham knew my day and he rejoiced. When the angel of the Lord came to Abraham, I think it was Jesus. 
I don't know if he looked like he did when he came to the earth. It was Jesus. Jesus will look when we see him like he did on the earth. Although when we see him in his glorified state, we'll fall like his best friend John did in Revelation 1 at his feet. Thinking that we're dead. So, even though Abraham is our model, Jesus is where he's pointing to. Jesus is the one who gives you the hope To keep on going no matter what. Because everything is going to ultimately be made right. There may be any number of reasons that you would question God's ways. And any number of voices that are telling you. You're a fool if you keep on believing that. But the promises of God are steady and sure. And are an anchor of the soul. And you can always trust God. Remember that. This week when life is really bad, you can always trust God. Well, this morning, for perspective and spiritual benefit, we're going to come to the Lord's table. As we do on the first Sunday of every month. And as we come here, the cross is going to be in full view. Remember, whatever problem you have, and you say, how can this be happening? How is this fair? Look to the cross. Look to the cross and think what is, what is stated there. God sending his own son, Jesus, begging if there's another way. And the father in his silence saying, this is the only way. And Jesus willingly going to the cross even though he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Nonetheless, into your hands I commit my spirit. Ultimate trust at the cross. As the elders and deacons and uh, worship leaders come, if you would come uh, to the front row in preparation for communion, we will come forward. There will be four stations in the front. Please go to the stations in front of you. Come on these interior aisles. There will be an usher showing you to come down these interior aisles when it's your turn to go. Go to the station in front of you. You can take the elements, the bread, and the juice uh, at right there where you are, you can take them back to your seat. Um, but we are going to participate as brothers and sisters in Christ, according to 1 Corinthians 10, in the body and the blood of Christ. We welcome all those who acknowledge Jesus Christ as your personal Savior to come and join us at this table. Um, You'll come down the interior aisles and then you'll either go back up the center or the outside aisles. We'll have ushers to help you know uh, exactly where to go and where to be at that time. We'll also have a couple of ushers in the back. Uh, If you, for whatever reason, medically you're not able, you would prefer to be served where you are. If you have a reason that you can't come forward, please raise your hand and, and they will come to you and will serve you in your seat. In Matthew 26, we're told, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. 
I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. He was sharing with them this meal that represented his body and his blood. And he said, we are partakers together of this meal. He was not saying this bread and this blood are my body. They will become my body. He wasn't saying that. But he was saying they represent me at the level that we commune together when we partake. And I will not partake of it again until all of this is past. And the day has come where all wrongs have been made right. And so this morning, as we come to this table... And we come with our pain and our sorrow and our doubts and our question. The promises of God tell us that Jesus died for us. And that because of his death we live, we are united with him in his death and in his resurrection. And we live gloriously in hope because of what he has done for us regardless Of what the world says to us or what our circumstances say to us. So come this morning with a full heart. 1 Corinthians 11 tells us to examine our hearts before we come. Listen, if you're struggling with sin in your life, this is a good time to say, Father, forgive me. I don't ever want to do that again. Please help me. Don't come because you've struggled with this ongoing. Don't not come, I mean, because you've struggled with this in an ongoing way and saying, well, I'm not worthy to take. None of us are worthy to take this. The Lord says, don't take it in an unworthily manner. And really, he was referring to some first century things that were going on. If you come and say, hey, I'm just living like I want to, and I don't care what anybody says I'm going to live, that's a dangerous thing to do. Don't come if that's the case. If you've got issues with the Lord, don't come. But if you're sinning and you're struggling and you're saying, oh, God, please come. Forgiveness is found in Jesus. He loves you. He died for you. And he wants to commune with you and commune as a body. He wants us to commune as a body. So we'll pray. The leaders will be served. And then we will begin uh, our time of corporate communion. Father, on this day, uh, we confess that this is a broken world. It was for me this morning spinning, literally spinning. Um, Father, my troubles on this day are not near the troubles that others have. And we are tempted to think that we have been failed. Or we're tempted to think that we have failed irreparably beyond any hope. But Father, the promises of God tell us that there is hope in Christ. That He is a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. And so on this day, as we come to your table, we thank you for inviting us. Thank you for bringing us into your family. Thank you for saying, come and dine with me. But this meal is not just any meal of fellowship. It is one in which we commune with you at the deepest levels, remembering and acknowledging and entering into the death and resurrection of Christ. As we eat this meal, we proclaim the Lord's 
return until the day that he comes. Thank you for making this way. For us to remember the promises that we have in Christ. And the redemption that is ours because of his suffering. And his suffering because of our sin. We can only say thank you Lord. And so as we eat and drink. We do with grateful hearts. Sorrowful over sin, yes. But grateful beyond measure. That a way has been made. To enter into the holy of holies. Thank you our father. In Christ's name. Amen. You remain standing for the benediction. My name is Scott. I'm one of the elders here at Grace. I've been asked to remind us of a few things before we take uh, have the benediction. Um, one is the seniors are carpooling or caravanning to Kathy's house, right? Damaris's house. Damaris's house. Okay, Kathy's involved. She's she's the leader of this thing, I think. So the Damaris's home. So meet here in the lobby uh, for that. Um, the youth. We'll be meeting at our home tonight for the Super Bowl party. All right. So that's the other. Uh, don't have a time on that. What time? Six o'clock. You see where I rely on on uh, just to live, just to get through get through the day, you know. So um, I praise God that I have uh, my wife. Praise God that I have you as brothers and sisters. Hope and I trust that the feeling and the knowledge is mutual amongst us. Um, it is so because of Christ, the anchor that He provides for us in the midst of um, this life. And I know we're not exactly facing the same things as the original hearers of this letter that we're studying, Hebrews, but in very real ways, uh, yes, we are. Because we're in the same fallen and broken world that has the same enemy as they have. Not the Romans, but Satan. And he is, in our context, in our day, in our culture, trying to do the same thing to the image of Christ and his people that he was doing in that day. And that is to try to stamp it out. He's defeated. But in his stamping it out, or attempt to stamp it out in us, it hurts. It's painful. And it does cause us to do the very same things that it caused these people to do, to question, to wonder, to, to fear. But we do not have to because of Christ, and we thank Him for that. So I leave you with this, the same uh, prayer that the writer of Hebrews left his original hearers with out of chapter 13, verse 20. Now may the God of peace who brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, and ratified an eternal covenant with his blood, 
May he equip you with all you need for doing his will. May he produce in you through the power of Jesus Christ every good thing that is pleasing to him. All glory to him forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen.